factors six and seven, samadhi and equanimity. Equanimity is in Pali, upeka. Samadhi is often translated as concentration. It would be better to translate it as centering, focusing, balancing. The essence of samadhi, when we start with a word like concentration, people refer to the strain of paying attention and often tension creeps in. So people do give themselves headaches with attempting to pay attention. And how do you pay attention? It's interesting, in elementary school, your teacher may have exclaimed to the class, pay attention, but they never tell you how. <laughs> they just say, pay attention, and then you're seven years old, you're supposed to know how, how to do that. How do you manipulate your mind to pay attention? How do you... And, of course, some kids will wrinkle their brow like this because it looks like you're paying attention. It doesn't help. Uh, so it's not an act of squinting, and it's not squinting your brain either, or your mind, but it is... Well, they should introduce it into classrooms early in life. They should just get everybody to look through a telescope or binoculars and say, now focus the binoculars. That's how you do it. That's what paying attention is. When you're focused, when it's luminously clear and everything is in focus and you can see. The, the essence of focus is, is luminosity Luminous in the sense of lucid, clear, lit. So when we talk about light of the mind as well, so it's a lot of talk, the word enlightenment. These are enlightenment factors. Does it really mean light, or is it a poetic use of the word light? Can a blind person be enlightened? Yes. Is it inner light? I suppose there's a, some sense of that. There's, there's inner darkness. More people will be familiar with inner darkness than they will be with inner light. When we speak of enlightened people, we're talking about a very small portion of the population as enlightened. When we speak about unenlightened, we're speaking about the mass of humanity. And when we speak about darkness, ignorance, we're speaking about a substantial portion of the population as well. And lots of people are familiar with depression and anger and despair and anxiety. And if you're a little bit of the poetic nature, you will know that they use words like darkness and so forth for that. Being lost in the fog. These, of course, are represented in art and in poetry. So. When we talk about the mind, we have to describe it in terms of external things that you can see. But I would say not to overemphasize the idea of light too much. The light is realization, is clarity, is ability to see the details of things, to see the truth about things.
And there is a, there is a moment of um, perhaps like inner light that does arise. I mean, neurologists and various people who are interested in the brain activity, they ask people, what are you experiencing when this happens and, and that happens? And inner light may be experienced, but the literalness of it is not so important. It is, it's more important than light. So light is, is just not that important, is it? Understanding is, well-being is, the heart unburdened is, light is not. It's a side effect. So samadhi is this faculties of the mind that are in balance, and they're positive factors. So I spoke earlier in previous talks about the abandonment of the five hindrances, the abandonment of greed and anger, sloth, agitation, doubt. By the way, when you, if you're interested in practice, you really have to know the five hindrances. They are essential in understanding this process towards awakening. They are the nemesis of the seven factors of enlightenment. So you see this in the, in the foundations of mindfulness, the fourth of the four foundations of mindfulness, dhamma objects or dhamma categories. The first is these five hindrances. And then later on you encounter the seven factors of awakening. And you'll probably find formulations of right mindfulness that have only those two categories in them. Just the five hindrances, seven factors of awakening. If you can really get to know these inside out, then you have a comprehensive way of approaching the entire path. And you will see that, that lots of people don't, uh, are not, a, not able to understand their own experience of the five hindrances. The third category is mindfulness of the mind, and there you have an attempt to train the mind to actually see these hindrances. So you just ask some simple questions, uh, kind of a checklist of simple questions. Are you angry or not? You're asking yourself this. Angry or not? Greedy or not? Confused or not? Expansive or not? Um, unsurpassable or not? Have you gone, are you in a state of, of consciousness that, that you can't go beyond, that is so good that you haven't gone beyond that? These are questions that you interrogate yourself with, and that is to know. You see this duality, the, the Buddha just splits this up into, into two categories. Hindrance or, or their opposites, the seven factors. So this is very critical. The mind is such a, a vast sort of cloudy sky. I don't know whether you learned about clouds when you were in elementary school or in high school. When you imagine when a person has no idea of the nature of or the distinction of different types of clouds. You just look up in the sky and there's just this massive stuff up there. But 
it is amazingly clarifying to find out that there are cumulus clouds and strata clouds and all of these different types of clouds. And then once you find out what they are, then the sky takes on a different experience. You start to be able to, to name and understand what's going on in the atmosphere. The mind is like that for most people. They don't get systematic education. They, <laughs> the education system spends a lot of time teaching you about clouds and nothing about teaching you about your emotional states. They teach you about reading and writing and arithmetic and clouds, <laughs> identifying all of the, the nature of rocks and uh, elements, chemistry, all kinds of things, political structures, virtually nothing about your emotional state, that, that which is most important to your life. Formerly, that was left to religion, but not all religions are very adept at that either. So this is the critical element to well-being in life. And actually, of course, if many individuals in the society have no idea about the functions of the mind, are uneducated about that, then it's going to affect the entire structure of society as well. And the opposite, if you have a large portion of the society that's trained in these things, you're going to have a very beneficial effect on social systems, family systems, friendships, etc. So this is why whatever stage of life you're in, it's never too late to learn about the nature of the inner life and the, the highest possibilities of them. Because you won't find the higher possibilities. And samadhi, this sixth factor, is the higher possibility of the mind. You will just hear in uh, normal psychology about functional psychology, but you won't hear about supernormal, above-normal well-being and happiness. So this is what samadhi is. And I just want to go through the, the four stages. So this is the brilliance of the Buddha as well, is to be able to articulate the supernormal conditions of the mind. When the mind has been purged of the stains of psychic irritants, the purged of the five hindrances, what is the, is it just one type of consciousness or are there levels of consciousness? And there, he briefly describes it as four levels of consciousness. Four levels of consciousness, first jhana, which we, we touched on before, has the emotional quality of joy. It still involves some type of thought processes, vitaka and vichara, applied and sustained attention, which may take the form uh, verbal forms, but it, it is exclusively on a selected topic and it doesn't deviate from that and the five hindrances are absent. So you have the five elements of the first jhana, applied and sustained attention or thought, joy of the mind, ease of body, and complete engagement or oneness with the subject, ekagata, the last factor. This, uh, this is a critically important factor, and it's quite often defined as this, or misunderstood as a kind of a laser-like 
one-pointed attention. And again, that's a misdirection. It's, it's unification of the mind. The word one is in there, eka in Pali, eka, one. But oneness is far different than one-pointedness, like the tip of a spear. You could think about it that way, the complete attention to a single point of interest, but that should not be interpreted as a, too much of a physical simile. It's not like that in the mind. The mind isn't a sharpened spear, and you're likely to give yourself a headache if you understand it that way, instead of a complete rapt interest, enraptured. And sometimes the, this word piti, the third factor of the first jhana, which I, I'm translating as joy, is translated as rapture, rapturous experience. And if you look at, uh, especially the commentaries go into it, the Visuddhimagga, the late, late commentaries go into the types of experience of joy. And they are all the way from a kind of mild ripple of skin uh, that maybe your hair stands up to tears, tears of joy, shivers going up your spine, and kind of a a levitation kind of feeling like you can hardly stay on the ground. You're jumping for joy. By the way, so all of these types of joy are experienced in ordinary life by people. When your child wins the race, you feel the, the smile. When your country wins the medal in the Olympics and uh, they get up on the platform and then the national anthem plays, even if you're not nationalistic, <laughs> you can get tears in the corner of your eye. When things go well for you, um, you win the lottery or something like this, you can feel shivers up your spine. You can, you can literally, of course, people, you see people jumping up and down. They can hardly stay on the ground. This starts to occur actually early in childhood. You see children reacting this way. You get a, a puppy for Christmas and you'll see tears, etc., of, of joy. So this type of uh, emotional rapture can occur in, in samadhi. And the reason why is it's truly important is that you have discovered how to unburden yourself. The normal, whether we understand it or not, but we're under stress all the time. We have a low-grade or maybe high-grade anxiety going on. There's just existential anxiety there's a lot of things to attend to. There's overwhelming sense that everything is uncertain and out of control, including the meaning of your existence. So this is playing upon people. This is well articulated, especially in non-religious cultures, especially starting in the, in the 19th century in the West. You see this this emphasis by, by people who are very lucid about this, very clear about this, very bright about the nature of the atmosphere of the Western society as Christianity was falling away, is that existential anxiety happens. The very experience of being alive is an is a anxious experience. Samadhi all of that's gone. 
all of the hindrances are gone and you're not in existential doubt anymore. It's not something that should be in any way that one could criticize. And some people have, like people who are very involved in political type of uh, restructuring of society quite often criticize people who meditate because they're somehow avoiding the responsibility for changing society, etc. But quite often the motivations behind people who are trying to change society is just a form of anxiety. They're hoping to somehow make things, all the problems go away by rearranging the social structure. But it doesn't. You can live in a society where everybody has plenty, there's good medical care, there's all kinds of equality and so forth, and everybody's still racked with anxiety. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't address the deeper issues. Samadhi does. It's not the final, it's not the end of things, but it, it gives you a taste of what it might be like to actually be free from oppressive states of just that which goes along with existence without samadhi. So this is a taste, what we would say, a taste of nibbana, a temporary experience of, of freedom. So it goes on, and the, one of the similes, the, the way to understand these is through similes. So the first jhana has a simile of a, of a bath man, and his, a bath man is somebody who attends in the time of the Buddha to basically works at a spa, and they, they make the soap for people to use. And this soap is, seems to be very high-grade stuff. It's, it's made with clay and various perfumes and, and soap type of things, and you have to manipulate it a lot. So it's a kind of a, it's like making bread. Yeah, a lot of kneading goes on. Kneading in the sense of K-N-E-A-D. Knead, not N-E-E-D. Knead, to knead dough. So this is an act of distributing the, the moisture through this clay ball, which is the soap, so that it's perfect for using to scrub the body. And this is uh, it's an art to this, and it has to be spread evenly throughout this ball of soap, ball of clay soap. Notice the activity sense that you're actively attempting to spread what? Well, you're attempting to spread the essential um, emotional quality of PT, of joy, throughout your emotional structure, and it is also going to affect your entire body. So you, you, the sukha, this happiness quality, this pleasant quality, pervades your entire body. And so you can see activity there. You're aware of what's going on in your mind. You're aware of what's going on in your body. And you're actually making suggestions to yourself. That's the only way you can make this distribute throughout your body and your mind, your emotional structure and your body. Naturally speaking, whenever you really are interested and attending to something, that kind of experience will will rise. So when somebody gets uh, a 
you know, gets a gift that they really like and wanted, you will see that their entire attention is on that, that gift. Or they get into a relationship there, it's the first date, and they, they finally found the perfect person. And they're going to be absolutely, fully, rapturously attentive to that person. They can't believe their good fortune. And without trying, they're going to experience joy, and the body is going to drop into the background. So this is naturally occurs, but the Buddha is urging to become a specialist in this and get skills at this to be able to access this joy, rapture, and the secondary element right through the entire your physical body. Sometimes people uh, spend too much time separating the body and the mind. They, you really can't separate your body and your mind. The, the feeling of joy gives the impression that your entire body is experiencing this uh, elation, this, this happiness. So this is the instructions. As you move deeper into the samadhi, and by the way, this is the, these are the seven factors of enlightenment, so we're actually seeking to go as deeply as possible into these, these this samadhi, which are called jhanas. The second jhana, the applied and sustained thought falls away, and you're still left with joy pervading the body and mind. And uh, this oneness, this unification with your, the object, but you don't have to think about it. You're, you've passed that stage where you have to orient yourself to that. You're now in. And that is uh, compared to a mountain lake which has no rivers running into it, no streams running into it. And there's a mysterious, it's clear and pure, fresh water in the mountains with no apparent external source to it. But there's a spring that rises up and feeds this mountain pool. So this is the simile for the second jhana. And that's a, it's a mysterious source of joy. Now, most people want joy and they, and people experience joy. They, they find joy. They, so they go out to their favorite restaurant and they enjoy themselves. They, they watch the football game. They enjoy themselves. But the source of that is clearly external. You're getting it through your sensory experience. In the first jhana, you're getting it through examination, through thought processes. By the second jhana, though, these sources have mysteriously dropped away, and yet you're being fed with this. And of course, the image is pure, clean, uh, abundant water, which is removed. It's mysterious. You look around, why is that person in rapture? So some person is sitting, say a monk is sitting under a tree in India, perhaps in the shade, and there's a kind of expression of rapture on their face, very deep joy, the relaxed face of the meditator. And the, the body is sitting upright, and the person is observing from a distance. They wonder, what, what is, what's so interesting? Why is that person experiencing that rapture? And that is 
the source is coming up from within. And it, what, is, what is the source? It is the absolute abandonment of all of the negative uh, the hindrances. There is no psychic anxiety. There's no hostility. It's just like you've entered a world in which all the problems have been solved. There are no problems left. You're not worried about what you're going to eat or whether your job's going to last or whether you're going to get over your sore throat or how your relationships are going or all of these things. You're free from those. And when that happens, by the way, People have trouble conceiving of that. Sometimes they think it would be boring if they didn't have all these troubles. <laughs> what would I, you know, what would my life be without all these troubles? But actually, it is the nature of the mind. So the, the Buddha talks about this. If you manage to do this, if you've managed to free yourself completely from these hindrances, and you enter fully into these focused states, the mind is by its very nature luminous, light, free, rapturous. That's its nature. You don't have to worry, but what about me? Maybe my nature isn't. You, you don't have an a individual nature. When, when you go into there, your individuality falls away. And this thing called the mind, turns out it's not your your mind. It turns out that it's that you didn't make your mind. You don't know how it works. It just is, and it's not yours. And this is the same, of course, with your body. You don't. You didn't make your body. You don't know how the thing works, why it grew that way. And your mind is the same. In fact, this person who has the body or has the mind is the fiction. The body is there, the mind is there. The one who owns the mind, who made the mind, is not there. So the mind has universal processes, just like gravity has universal processes. Physics, we know these universal characteristics apply. They're not, they're not personal or anything like that. They just work that way. So this is the nature of the mind. So you can... You can be unburdened with the worry that maybe mind doesn't work that way. If you can get to that condition, then you will experience, have a universal experience of this, these samadhi factors. As we go deeper, then the, the pleasure in the body remains. Mindfulness is extremely intense, of course, Mindfulness being the first of the seven factors of enlightenment, it accompanies you through these samadhi states. A mindfulness has to be highly present and strong in order to enter this. And to maintain it and stay in it, the mindfulness has to be present and very strong. So then we have a simile of, of lotus plants that are growing up from the bottom of a pond and they are suspended. They haven't broken the surface yet, but they're saturated with water so that the buoyancy, they have neutral buoyancy, so they're, 
they float. There's no effort for them to be dangling upright in the water and they're saturated with this cool water pervades every aspect of them. Now it's effortless. This third jhana is like that. You're, you are suspended. You have no gravitational weight. And your, your psyche, your emotional structure is pervaded with this cool, refreshing emotion. So to get into those things, use the similes. The similes are the pictures to guide you in. Words don't work as well as pictures. So the, the Buddha draws pictures with words. And so you can imagine that. Look down into water sometime and watch. See, see the underwater plants floating. Uh, you may not have access to lotuses, but maybe uh, seaweed or any kind of floating underwater plants are beautiful, suspended, no, no gravitational aspect to them. The weight of existence is gone. And these days we see it with astronauts floating around in their capsules. We see them with zero gravity, zero weight. The body is great. However, despite the fact that they have zero gravity doesn't mean that they're happy. <laughs> so this is another kind of zero gravity, which is, which is the real zero gravity. You can't, you can't get out of the human dilemma of anxiety and problems just by having no weight, because everybody who went swimming then would have no problems. <laughs> but people who swim have problems. But... It's a little way of indicating the, the emotional state. But the body itself, the experience of the body itself is gravityless. It is, it is suspended. So that's the inner experience of these deep states. By the way, I'm talking about very deep states. This isn't something you're going to, after this talk, just sit down in your living room and do this. <laughs> a lot of people are quite mistaken about that. They have no sense of the, how... how supernormal this is and they go to sometimes they go to retreats and they think they've had these experiences but they're just sadly mistaken and the worst mistake you can make is to assume that you've had a very deep experience when you haven't because that deprives you of the of the motivation to to go farther so always underestimate what you experience, underestimate it rather than overestimate. It's, it's much more important that you underestimate your attainments and your capacities than to overestimate. You always should ask for more. It could be better, deeper, more wonderful. Always think that way in this. And there will be many people who indeed meditate for their lives but do not get to this stage. These deeper jhanas, the third jhana and so forth, are not available to many, many people. It, it does require a special lifestyle. It requires a commitment to, to practice all of these things. Something like being a, you know, a top-notch uh, pianist or something like this. Just, it's not a dime a dozen. It doesn't happen that way. The whole 
childhoods are devoted to the development of these things, special education, things like this. This is uh, virtuosity in the, in the emotional and existential dimension of human existence. It doesn't mean that you should just give it up because every step of the way along it improves the quality of your life. And it is worth uh, thinking about and is worth spending time moving towards because even if you come into the what we call pasadi, the fifth factor that precedes samadhi, that is enough more or less to retire with a small pension. It is, it is, you're not so terribly dependent on the external world anymore. You're approaching a sort of emotional independence from the outer world. And even the, the slightest bit of that just changes your relationship to ordinary existence and all of the motivations that people have. And you start to feel this peace and calm come to your heart, right? So this is uh, extraordinarily valuable. And so don't worry if you don't manage to win the Tchaikovsky composition, you know, uh, if, you, if you don't, aren't the best violinist in the world, never mind. The fourth jhana is very, very deep, and uh, it is, the simile is a, is a person is now just covered with a white cloth, and this white cloth symbolizes the idea that the body is virtually non-existent at that point. There's no, no experience of having a body, and mind has come to such a state of stillness that it's not joy, there's no joy in it. There's this quality of equanimity so the fourth jhana has as its emotional quality equanimity, and equanimity in this case is absolute stillness. But don't think about it as dull or anything like this. This is a, this is a form of happiness, but very s difficult to express in language. It's the most refined kind of, of happiness, this equanimity. And that brings me to the seventh factor of enlightenment, which is equanimity. So notice here that there's this beautiful transition from the fourth jhana, which is characterized emotionally as equanimity, perfect balance, stillness, balance, and equanimity as an enlightenment factor. So this uh, quality of unshakable stability in the midst of change is a result of wisdom and strength of mind. The Buddha gives a little simile, he says, as the great earth does not react whatever is thrown upon it, so one with equanimity and wisdom, and of course you can't be equanimous without wisdom, does not react whether praised or blamed, good fortune, bad fortune, obscurity or fame, whatever occurs. So as the great earth, sometimes garbage is thrown upon it, sometimes rose petals are thrown upon it. It's non-reactive. It's not, it's, it's indifferent to it. 
This is now a stage of incredible security. So that's one of the, one of the terms that the Buddha uses for achieving uh, the states of enlightenment is that you are incredibly secure. You are unshakably secure. You are not at the world's disposal anymore. You have arrived and your well-being is not losable. It's built into the system. It's unshakable. So this is this quality of equanimity. And there's two types primarily. One is, of course, this absolute stillness of deep samadhi. And that is you... you sometimes you, you see the in the, some of the Chinese schools of Buddhism, the, the monks doing some strange kind of acrobatic stuff, balancing stuff, where they balancing on one thumb. Eh? You thought it was hard enough to balance on one hand, try it on one thumb. Just kind of demonstration of like, it's an outward demonstration of inward stillness. It's perfect focus and balance. And then you'll also see this, these schools of the Shaolin schools and so forth, this incredible acrobatic movements, but with complete control. These uh, martial arts, by the way, have really come out of these, uh, of the inner life. The monks had to, had some problems with aggressive people as uh, and we have, all humans have problems with relationships. And you have problems with your own five hindrances. The five hindrances in, uh, you need to cultivate your, your martial arts within your own mind. You're being attacked and seduced and induced to sloth and induced to agitation and and persuaded to be in doubt by your own, your functions of your own mind. Do you know the moves? Do you know the counter moves? By the way, you have to practice them again and again because they're very fast. These hindrances are very fast. You've got to be faster. You've got to catch them before they rise. This is, this is uh, in martial arts, our external demonstrations of what is going on internally. You are dealing sometimes with multiple uh, aggressors. And you see, they cultivated a whole external type of skill based on internal ideas, uh, how you deal with the internal world of the mind. And if you're very, very good and adept at this, then you, you, you can defeat the five hindrances and you live in security. So these are like, these activities are similes for your inner life. Yeah? So you see the monks uh, fending off three or four people and so forth, uh, using techniques and spinning in the air and so forth. It's just an outward manifestation of the inner life. This is what, the inner, what you, your real martial arts are, what you have to do with inside you all the time. You need to learn them. By the way, you know what, what the, first, the first skill you, you learn when you go to a 
judo class or something like this is how to fall. It's like you're not going to win. <laughs> you learn how to fall without hurting yourself. <laughs> you learn how to not hurt yourself because you're going to lose a lot of bouts with the hindrances. They're going to win. You got to learn how not to get swept away by that. You need to learn how to get back up. You need how to prevent it next time. You need to head it off at the pass and you need to practice it a lot. So these are practice sessions. Meditation are practice sessions. And the mind has these elements in it that are problematic and you could, they kill they kill some people. <laughs> the hindrances will kill you. <laughs> They'll beat you up badly sometimes too. Oh yes, they do bad things to you. So you need to know how to deal with them. And then if you can, and you can get into a condition of mastery, then you have defeated those hindrances and you're free. So we come to the end of the seven factors of awakening. I wish you well in your, in your journey.